Hello, and welcome to this ePrimary Care Review podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of ePrimary Care Review. With us today from the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago is Dr. Amisha Walia, Assistant Professor of Medicine. And from the Ashner Medical Center in New Orleans, we're joined by Dr. Susan Karam, an endocrinologist. Our topic today is a follow-up to their recent ePrimary Care Review newsletter issue on managing type 2 diabetes in older adults. ePrimary Care Review is presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. This program is supported by an educational grant from Boringer Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. Learning objectives for this audio program include summarize appropriate screening related to both chronic diabetes complications as well as general health for older adults with diabetes, discuss medication management in older adults with multiple comorbidities, including renal insufficiency, and describe goals of care and medication management for patients with type 2 diabetes in nursing homes as well as at the end of life. Dr. Walia has indicated that she has served as a principal investigator for Novo Nordisk and a co-investigator on a research study for Eli Lilly and Company. Dr. Karam has indicated that she has no financial interests or relationships with a commercial entity whose products or services are relevant to the content of this presentation. Both our guests have indicated that there will be no references to unlabeled or unapproved uses of drugs or products in their discussion. Dr. Walia, Dr. Karam, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. In your newsletter issue, doctors, you reviewed recent findings about individualizing glycemic targets in elderly patients and about the use of both older and newer therapies to provide efficacy while minimizing the risk of hypoglycemia. What I'd like us to do today is focus on translating some of that knowledge into clinical practice. So if you would, Dr. Karam, start us out with a patient scenario. Our first patient today is a 91-year-old male who has type 2 diabetes that was diagnosed 12 years ago, who's coming into clinic with his wife. We're meeting him for the first time as he's switching his care providers. His blood pressure is 129 over 83 on Losartan 100 milligrams daily. He reports some numbness and tingling in his feet, and on exam, vibratory sensation is mildly decreased. Microalbumin to creatinine ratio is negative, and a recent eye exam was without retinopathy. A recent hemoglobin A1C was 7.6%. His current diabetes regimen includes nightly glargine, 18 units, citagliptin, 100 milligrams daily, and five units of rapid-acting insulin that he takes with his largest meal. He also uses a sliding scale when glucose is greater than 150. He reports few glucoses less than 70 and is also taking aspirin, 81 milligrams daily, and a statin. The first time you meet a new patient like this, Dr. Karam, what are your priorities? What do you need most to know about a new patient? When I meet a patient like this, I first like to sort of gather information on his diabetes history, including how long he's had diabetes, how well it's been controlled in the past, any known complications, his current antihyperglycemic regimen, whether or not he's having hypoglycemia and the severity of hypoglycemia if present, as well as any known comorbidities. Using all that information, I like to then make decisions regarding what age-appropriate screening he should have, what his blood sugar target should be, as well as any changes that are needed to his treatment. And then finally, I'd just like to emphasize that screening is a particularly important part of the visit when meeting a patient like this because the results of the screening can certainly affect our treatment decisions and glycemic targets to a greater degree in an elderly person than it would in a younger population. What screening is likely necessary for this patient? What does the guidance recommend? So there have been some screening recommendations made for older adults 
by the American Diabetes Association and their standards of care, as well as in a consensus report that they released in 2012 that made specific recommendations for diabetes management in older adults. The American Geriatric Society has also made recommendations, and using these two sources of guidelines together can be very helpful because a lot of our evidence-based recommendations for screening in a diabetes population come from younger patients. So these can be helpful when we're discussing older patients with diabetes. And then when I think about screening for older adults, I like to think of it as screening for both the traditional diabetes-specific complications that include retinopathy, neuropathy, nephropathy, as well as risk factors for cardiovascular disease like blood pressure and hyperlipidemia. But then we also consider screening for overall health, which can be helpful in individualizing treatment for these patients. Specific screening for this patient based on his age. What would that be, Dr. Walia? So screening in this population should largely be directed to those things which can lead to functional impairment and or short-term adverse events for older patients. Older adults with diabetes have more functional impairment compared to those without diabetes. And functional impairment can often be multifactorial. There's a lot of other comorbidities that can affect this, such as peripheral neuropathy, leading to unstable gait and unstable balance, vision and hearing loss. And some patients do abuse alcohol or have significant alcohol use. So patients should be asked about these things. Fall and fall risk should be assessed, and efforts to minimize hypoglycemia should be taken as this can also increase falls. Cognitive dysfunction and or dementia is also much more common in those with diabetes and has also been associated with poor outcomes such as hypoglycemia. The American Diabetes Association recommends screening for this at age 65 and then subsequently annually, whereas the Geriatric Society recommends at time of diagnosis of diabetes and with any change in functional status. Both organizations recommend using a standardized screening tool, which can be either the mini mental status exam or there's a cognitive assessment called the Montreal Cognitive Assessment. Both of these are assessment which can be done in the office visit, and they both roughly take around 10 minutes. So you do have to try to find time to administer and someone to administer this if you are planning to do this in your clinic. If cognitive dysfunction is found, there should be considerations for simplification of the regimen because diabetes and the self-care that revolves around diabetes, such as glucose monitoring, and insulin injection, or other types of injections can be very complex. And whenever possible, I recommend to my patients to have their caregivers involved or family support involved and also remind them that they really should monitor closely for low blood sugars. We also want to make sure that nutritional issues are also addressed, such as poor appetite, Many older adults have limited access to food. They can have changes in smell and taste, which can really affect their nutritional intake. And then there's also some issues with swallowing difficulties for those who are perhaps older. The American Diabetes Association recommends the mini nutritional assessment, which is really designed for older adults to help them determine if diet is adequate or if patients would benefit from referral to nutritionists. In my own practice, I do refer to a nutritionist because I think this is really helpful. The assessment, if you choose to do it in your office, is a validated six-question assessment, and it can really help identify patients at risk for malnutrition. There's also 
still a high prevalence of those who are overweight and obese who also fall under the category of older adults, and they may benefit from weight loss. However, this must be done carefully as you don't want to worsen sarcopenia or bone health or exacerbate mild to moderate nutritional deficiencies that may also be happening concurrently. And obviously, as we know, a lot of older adults that have chronic diseases are on a lot of medications. So polypharmacy is always an issue. And so I make sure to have a careful medication review each and every time I see an older patient in my clinic. And screening for diabetes-related complications. How do you decide what's needed for this patient? So I think even when you're talking about diabetes-related complications, a key consideration is a patient's functional status and quality of life in the short term. So it's important to focus on things such as eye disease, such as retinopathy, which could lead to visual impairment, and things like neuropathy, which could lead to possible foot ulcers or amputations, because these are actually major quality of life issues should they occur. You also want to balance the burden of frequent testing and clinic visits. How so? For example, there is evidence that in those with diabetes, with no history of retinopathy, you can space out eye exams to every two to three years. This recommendation has been supported by the American Diabetes Association in their consensus statement in older adults. And so, for example, in this patient, I would space out the eye exams. I would also consider pill burden as this can be both a concern for quality of life as well as risk for medication interactions and noncompliance. I would continue the Lozartan as blood pressure is at goal on this medication as well as the statin given the known benefit. However, I would discuss with the primary care physician and the patient the benefit of the aspirin because it does lead to a risk of bleeding. Anything to add, Dr. Karam? Yes, with a patient like this who's on insulin, one of the things that I certainly would like to do is ensure that his vision is adequate to be able to monitor his glucose, inject insulin in a safe way, as well as distinguish between long and short-acting insulin as getting these confused can lead to both hyper or hypoglycemia. I also wonder for this patient, because his diabetes is fairly well-controlled based on his A1C and glycemic values that he's able to present, I wonder whether or not he even needs the rapid-acting insulin with the largest meal of the day as he's taking right now. You could consider, for example, changing his medication so that he's using an oral medication rather than the rapid-acting insulin with his meal, or at least liberalizing his regimen a little bit so that the scale he's using begins with a glucose greater than 200 and is not used at night before going to bed. I would also potentially consider moving his glargine to the morning from the evening so as to prevent overnight hypoglycemia. His HbA1c is 7.6%. That's over the value that would usually indicate the need for intensification. How much does 7.6% concern you? Well, based on guidelines that we have, we know that it is actually recommended to liberalize hemoglobin A1c goals in older adults to be able to prevent the risk of hypoglycemia. So I actually believe for a patient such as this who is at an advanced age and has other comorbidities, that a hemoglobin A1c of 7.6 is a reasonable goal. And over time, you could even consider liberalizing that further to closer to 8%, particularly if you were to develop other comorbidities. Thank you, doctors, for sharing your insights. And we'll return with Drs. Walia and Karam in just a moment. 
You've been listening to a Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine ePrimary Care Review podcast. We're a combination newsletter and podcast continuing educational series focused specifically on information important to primary care providers. We're available online without cost or prerequisite. ePrimary Care Review newsletters focus on a specific area of importance to the care of patients presenting to primary care. Each newsletter is authored by an expert clinician who reviews the current literature and provides commentary and analysis. The podcasts are case-based discussions, like the one you've been listening to, focused on experts translating the new information from the newsletter into clinical practice. Continuing education credit for ePrimary Care Review is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. For more information about ePrimary Care Review, please go to our website, epcpreview.org. And if you've enjoyed this podcast and found the information useful, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so that others can find it as well. Thank you. Welcome back to this ePrimary Care Review podcast. We've been speaking with Dr. Amisha Walia from Chicago's Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine and Dr. Susan Karam from Ashner Medical Center in New Orleans about some of the clinical aspects of managing type 2 diabetes in older adults. So to continue that focus, Dr. Walia, please bring us another patient scenario. This next patient is a 76-year-old African-American male with type 2 diabetes for four years high blood pressure with chronic kidney disease stage 2, a history of myocardial infarction, and was very recently diagnosed with mild new-onset heart failure. His current hemoglobin A1c is 9.5 on metformin, 1,000 milligrams daily. His main complaint is excess urination. His BMI is 27.5, and he has very mild cognitive impairment, is not frail, and has had no recent falls or fractures, and he lives with his wife. Today, he is here for additional medication management given his worsening hemoglobin A1c. His current A1c is 9.5%. So what should it be for this patient, and what factors do you consider to determine his proper A1c goal? So according to the American Diabetes Association guidelines, Nzuchi et al. discusses modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors when setting hemoglobin A1c goals, especially those for adults who are older. It's important to remember that we are not driving down to a number per se, but we're really looking for what is a safe range for the patient, taking into context the comorbidities. So this patient has macrovascular complications and has mild cognitive impairment, both likely non-modifiable and is at high risk for hypoglycemia given renal insufficiency. I would aim for a hemoglobin A1c around 8, but also screen for both severe and moderate hypoglycemia. I would not be reassured by the hemoglobin A1c being high in this case, but with that being said, it is high enough in this case that it actually does need to be addressed. Share your thoughts with us, if you would, please, on medication management. He's currently on 1,000 milligrams of metformin daily. The FDA and other organizations around the world have actually liberalized the recommendations for the use of metformin in mild to moderate renal insufficiency 
And the FDA has recommended that those with a GFR between 45 and 60 can be started on metformin or remain on metformin at a lower dose. And those with a GFR between 30 and 45 can remain on metformin but should not initiate therapy. And those below a GFR of 30 should not be on therapy. And in this case, there is no perfect drug, unfortunately. Now we are in the age where we have large cardiovascular randomized controlled trials that are helping us decide what drug to use in situations. But remember, there are differences between each drug in each class even and the molecular action and subsequent efficacy. And there are differences in side effects. And there's also non-glycemic benefits and risks that may be different even within drugs within each class. But we know with sulfonurias, They are efficacious, but we'd likely like to avoid the longer-acting ones due to the high risk of hypoglycemia. And the DPP-4 inhibitors, while they may not be as efficacious, they are generally well-tolerated. Linagliptin and cytogliptin can be used in the setting of renal insufficiency. However, there's no big improvement in weight, and caution does need to be taken with this class for those who have a heart condition such as heart failure. So metformin, the sulfonylureas, the DPP-4s, What about the more efficacious medications, Dr. Karam? There are several other options that you could consider for a patient such as this. One option would be adding a long-acting insulin, which is very effective and would allow for a considerable amount of flexibility with titration of the dose. It is, however, associated with increased weight gain as well as hypoglycemia, which should be taken into consideration. You also, as we've discussed before, would have to take into consideration a patient's ability to give insulin that can be limited by things such as vision issues and dexterity. Another alternative would be the SGLT2 inhibitors, which could be a nice option because they're oral medications. These have also been shown to have some benefit for hypertension, heart failure, as well as weight loss. And they've also been shown to have some benefit in early diabetic renal disease. However, on the flip side, they're not as efficacious in patients who have a lower GFR. So that has to be taken into consideration as well. Another class of medications that we use often are the GLP-1 agonists. A GLP-1 agonist such as loraglutide has evidence from recent cardiovascular trials that show lower rates of development and progression of nephropathy compared to placebo. So that's certainly a benefit. You know, the main side effects of the GLP-1 agonist include GI distress as well as a potential for worsening hypoglycemia and they also are injectable medications. So with both insulin and the GLP-1s, we do have to take into consideration whether or not, one, a patient is able, and two, if they're willing to use a daily injection, as not all patients are. I think for this patient, you really could consider a choice from any of these three classes of medications. Ideally, he would probably benefit the most from either a long-acting insulin or a GLP-1, but certainly an SGLT2 inhibitor could be considered as well. His renal insufficiency, what if that progresses? Dr. Walia, how would you proceed? When renal insufficiency progresses, that's always a concern. We do know that use of insulin is safe in those with moderate to severe CKD or end-stage renal disease, but we also have to look at hypoglycemia. We know from inpatient studies that with the use of insulin and CKD, you can actually reduce the amount of insulin by half 
in those with moderate CKD and still have adequate glycemic control, but with the benefit of having less hypoglycemia. And there also are published algorithms for simplification of insulin regimens, especially for those who may be at risk for hypoglycemia and or may not be able to handle injections four times a day. Most of the guidelines agree that insulin needs to be started when the A1C is greater than 10, although some say greater than 9. And it's good evidence with randomized control data in those with type 2 diabetes that have shown that one long-acting injection with a one short-acting insulin bolus with the largest meal can be just as efficacious as those who are on a long-acting injection plus three prandial injections a day. In my clinic, anecdotally, especially with older adults with or without renal insufficiency, I have used long-acting insulin one time a day and then used an oral agent such as a DPP-4 inhibitor, which does have some postprandial effect to reduce A1C. This regimen does seem to have fewer side effects, less hypoglycemia, and you're able to titrate additional medications or titrate the long-acting insulin, increase it or decrease it with various changes in clinical status. Well, thank you for that case discussion, doctors. I believe we got time for one more patient scenario, so if you would please, Dr. Walia. Great. So our patient is an 85-year-old female with metastatic colon cancer with a history of diabetes for 10 years, type 2. She is on glargine 25 units daily and Aspar 8 units with meals, as well as sliding scale insulin for blood sugars greater than 200 at mealtime and bedtime, and her A1C is currently 10. She was recently admitted to the hospital for severe anemia and is now ready for discharge. However, because of increasing care needs, she will be admitted to a nursing home. For people with diabetes who enter nursing home facilities, Dr. Karam, what special concerns need to be considered? Yes, the long-term care population is a very diverse group of people. It includes patients who need complete assistance, some assistance or no assistance at all, thus diabetes management really needs to be individualized for these patients. The American Diabetes Association released a position statement in 2016 that reviews their recommendations on managing patients in long-term care facilities, and this can be a good guide. Avoidance of hypoglycemia is really one of the most important factors when making treatment decisions for this population because they can have really significant negative consequences. We also know that hypoglycemia is more common in long-term care residents due to changes in things such as renal function, poor appetite or dietary restrictions, polypharmacy, as well as a loss of hypoglycemia awareness that's been proven in studies. On the other hand, you also have to weigh this with the risk of symptomatic hyperglycemia, which should be avoided as it can put patients at risk of dehydration, lightheadedness leading to falls, electrolyte abnormalities, and urinary incontinence. In general, it's recommended that a fasting and pre-meal glucose goal between 100 and 200 is acceptable. So the individual treatments really should be patient-specific. But a general rule of thumb to follow is that reliance on sliding scale alone should be avoided because that leads to large fluctuations in glucose and you're sort of always chasing your tail to try to catch up with the high sugars rather than preventing them from happening. The ADA position statement also includes a helpful chart that can help guide a change from sliding scale insulin to a basal bolus regimen. So this can be used as a guide. 
And finally, I'd like to just say that it's important to consider the diet that people are given when they enter long-term care facilities. And it's recommended against using sort of the traditional diabetic or no concentrated sugar diet because these are often very restrictive and they lead to patients not getting the nutrition that they really need and can exacerbate nutritional deficiencies or cause unintentional weight loss. Medical nutrition therapy can be very effective for managing diabetes, but we also don't want to go too far and make these diets overly limited. So in general, I recommend using a general diet with a consistent amount of carbohydrate at each meal, which allows patients more options, but also helps to avoid hypoglycemia while they're on sort of fixed doses of insulin. What about her diabetes medication management? What changes would you make? So for this patient, one of the first things I did was move her basal insulin from being given at bedtime to being given in the morning to help prevent nocturnal hypoglycemia, which is certainly a risk for a patient such as her. I also considered doing a trial of discontinuing her mealtime insulin and started a DPP-4. I would consider medications such as linagliptin or citagliptin, as these can have a lower risk of hypoglycemia, but can also be effective at controlling postprandial hyperglycemia, as we've discussed. For her, I would target a goal glucose, both fasting and pre-meal in the 100 to 200 range. The benefit of discontinuing the mealtime insulin also means that we can consider spacing out how frequently her glucoses need to be checked. And you could consider monitoring twice a day rather than before meals and at bedtime as we typically do for patients. This just helps to improve patient comfort. I also requested that the patient remain on a general diet with relatively consistent carbohydrates with each meal as her appetite was poor to begin with, and I wanted to ensure that she was able to maintain adequate nutrition. You presented us with an 85-year-old woman, type 2, with metastatic colon cancer. Elderly patients in nursing homes, particularly those with advanced diseases, may eventually elect to enter hospice care. How do you approach diabetes management for patients in hospice? Dr. Walia? Well, the goal of glucose control in patients at the end of life is to really to promote comfort and quality of life. This can be a balance between minimizing glucose monitoring and treatment while also avoiding severe hyperglycemia, which can also cause symptoms such as polyuria and polydipsia. A goal glucose of 2 to 300 can be reasonable depending on patient symptoms. I would take into consideration the balance between hyper and hypoglycemia, which is present, as well as anticipated nutritional intake. It is reasonable to decrease the monitoring of the blood sugars in patients with type 2 diabetes, although this could vary from twice a day to every few days, depending on the patient and their control. Insulin regimens should really be simplified, and if possible, oral medications should be used. It's important to discuss the goals with the patients and their families, as they may feel uncomfortable with the change in glycemic targets, or they may be refusing testing and blood sugars, checking and monitoring. So their wishes in regards to further testing and medication should be discussed and honored as long as it's safe for the patient. For this patient, we continued the DPV-4 inhibitor while she was easily able to tolerate that medication, and this class of medication can be a nice choice in this instance, instance given the low risk of side effects and hypoglycemia and the control of postprandial blood sugars, and we also decreased the glucose monitoring to daily. Doctors, I want to thank you both for sharing your insights today on managing type 2 diabetes in older adults. Let's wrap things up now by reviewing today's discussion in light of our learning objectives. So to begin, the appropriate screening for both chronic diabetes complications as well as general health for older adults with diabetes. Dr. Karam? 
So as we discussed, screening for elderly patients with diabetes should include screening for traditional complications such as retinopathy, neuropathy, as well as risk factors for cardiovascular disease such as high blood pressure and hyperlipidemia. It's also important to include general health screening for depression and vision loss as these factors can have a large impact when choosing the appropriate treatment for patients as well as preventing adverse effects such as hypoglycemia. And our second learning objective, medication management in older adults with type 2 diabetes with multiple comorbidities, including renal insufficiency. Dr. Walia? So the choice of medication must largely take into consideration comorbidities, particularly as patients with multiple comorbidities, including CKD, are at high risk for things like hypoglycemia. Each medication has unique risks and benefits, and these must be considered on an individual basis, especially in regards to age, obesity, presence of cardiovascular disease, and renal disease. And A1C goals should be considered on an individual basis, keeping in mind that a high A1C is not always indicative of safety or lower risk or presence of hypoglycemia. And finally, the goals of care and medication management for patients with type 2 diabetes who are in nursing homes as well as those at the end of life. Dr. Karam? The long-term care population is a diverse one, but overall, they have an increased risk of hypoglycemia for a variety of reasons, which include comorbidities, poor appetite, as well as changes in renal function. For this reason, efforts should be made to simplify medication regimens and ensure safety for these patients. And this can often include minimizing insulin and replacing insulin with other agents as able. And finally, the goals of treatment should be discussed with patients and their families. It may be reasonable at the end of life to consider stopping glucose monitoring as well as diabetes medication. From Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine, Dr. Amisha Walia, and from the Ashner Medical Center in New Orleans, Dr. Susan Karam, thank you both for participating in this ePrimary Care Review podcast. Thank you so much for having us. It was really a pleasure. Thank you so much for including us. It's been wonderful to be here today. For ePrimary Care Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at epcpreview.org. This podcast is presented in conjunction with ePrimary Care Review Newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME credit, emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients presenting to primary care. This activity has been developed for clinicians diagnosing or managing patients presenting to primary care. There are no fees or prerequisites for this activity. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register and receive ePrimary Care Review via email, please go to our website, epcpreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine name implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. 
ePrimary Care Review is supported by an educational grant from Borwinger Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Thank you for listening.